and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? If those were in French originally, I should learn them in French and say those questions in, in French because they're from his famous triptych. This is really not useful. Hi, I am your main panelist today. This is Richard Litauer, and we don't have any other panelists, but we have an amazing guest who's coming back. Sorry, is that, was that too much? That... <laughs> Okay, we have an amazing guest who's coming back on the show for the second time who is making faces at me for my weird stilted introduction. Toby Langel is calling in today from Geneva, Switzerland. We were just talking about French, which is why I felt okay going on that weird discourse, diatribe, whatever. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. So Toby, as you may remember, is a consultant on open source. He runs his consultancy Unlock Open and is a really excellent resource for learning about the ins and outs of how open source works and things like legality and where it's going. I'm not saying he's a lawyer, but he has a really good common sense approach to dealing with common issues that we have with open source licenses and the like. Now, one of the reasons why I asked him on today is because there was this wonderful tweet that he sent out, which we're going to get into about this graph or grid of open source. And I think it's very instructive and useful for thinking about open source when you think about different sorts of projects. We're going to get to that in a second. Before we get there, Toby, Sava, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me again. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited about this. This is a topic that I find is extremely timely right now. I mean, we, we probably shouldn't have been talking about this for like two or three decades, but we haven't. And now like we really need to. So I'm glad that we are. Cool. So you already know what we're going to talk about. Can you just dive right in? What is the this that you refer to? Yeah. So I think the this that I refer to is that initial tweet and that threat that you were referring to. And it's all about this, essentially this question that we've focused open source, the concept of open source on licensing forever. And that's, that's a really big shame because there's a lot more to open source than just the code. And there's even more to open source than just the license of the code. Open source is all about the practices, the norms, the culture, the way of working, the, all of these sort of like external community aspects um, to building software together in the open. And licensing is an important part of it. Don't get me wrong, because it's sort of like an enabler to some degree of all of the rest. But it's by far not the key part of how we collectively today, I believe, perceive what open source is about and how we should focus on it. That's really interesting. You say we've been focusing on the licensing and I already catch a divide. Longtime listeners of the podcast know that I'm definitely in the open source as the community camp. There are people who are not there. You know, so the OSI, for instance, you talk to anyone at the OSI for whom I technically fundraise. So I guess me. But you talk about people at the OSI and they say, well, licensing is what open source is. Without the license, there is no open source. And therefore, by definition, it's only about licensing at the end of the day. And this is really important for certain reasons. When you're dealing with large companies, when you're dealing with things like how do you do procurement, when you're dealing with lawyers, you want to talk about licensing as part of what open source means and why you know such license is not open source, such license is open source. But as you get to Toby, like, Open source has grown to a lot more than that. It's kind of a culture. It's much less about just, well, do you have MIT license? It's more about, hey, can you open, you know, are you taking my PRs? Are you there? How's the maintainer? Can I become a maintainer? Is this on GitHub or GitLab? What's going on? Oh, cool. Did you see the tweet? You know, it's like, it's a whole world out there. Right. 
I'd like to sort of just talk to one of the things that you mentioned there, which I think is really important. You sort of mentioned licenses and sort of brought licenses back from the perspective of essentially compliance in using open source in corporations. And that's historically, I think, where that focus comes from. However, if you look at what corporations today are talking about, right? And if you consider essentially compliance as a de-risking strategy, which is what it is, right? It's comply to avoid doing things that you're not supposed to and incurring legal issues as a result. You're going to see quickly that it's not the only thing that corporations really care about. The other thing that corporations really care about are security of the software. And the other aspect is community health. Why? And what's interesting, that security itself has to do really closely to community health. So if you look at the three things that matters, even if you're looking at just this strictly from a corporate perspective, which I don't think we should be doing. But even if you do, then what really matters is compliance to the license, security of the software, health of the community. Why? Because an unhealthy community means that you don't know how long the software is going to keep being maintained. And a software that is not properly maintained or whose maintainers shift often, as we've seen recently, is a huge security hole. So even if you look at this from a strictly you know, corporate, if you look at open source as a, a, a good way to save money for corporations, right? Like even in that case, we can't just look at it from the licensing perspective alone. It's too reductive. So imagine if we actually think about open source from a commons perspective and from people from hugely different cultures and background getting together to work on software, then obviously licensing is, you know, it should be the enabler of this, but uh, really, it's the other thing that we should be spending more time talking about. I think another aspect in there that might be really useful is reliability, which is kind of related to security, kind of related to community health. But people want to know that it's not going to break their servers in the middle of the night. They want to know that they're not going to have to take devs off one project and put them on another project. And by they, again, I mean large corporate interest. Now, what's interesting to me is, again, this perspective is only one of the stakeholders in open source. There's a whole ton of other stakeholders besides corporate interest. There's NGOs, there's community developers who don't work for a large corporation, there's SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, and of course there's, you know, people who are just having fun and messing around and building cool stuff. And I think this is, you know, that's kind of where a lot of JavaScript I feel started as far as the Node ecosystem was people just sort of messing around and and trying to do interesting things. And they wouldn't have the same perspective on open source in my opinion. So I want to get to the tweet you made, and I don't want to refer to things as a tweet. I know it's a bite-sized manner of information. I want to go back to the micro blog post you made. You have this grid with a Y and an X axis. Can you describe what's in each quadrant? Okay. So in this graph, essentially what I describe is on the Y axis, software that uses not OSI certified licenses sit at the bottom. Projects that use OSI certified licenses sit at the top. And then on the x-axis, if you can picture that, you want to have on your left-hand side projects that ignore open source norms and practices, and on the right-hand side, projects that actually embrace them. And this is an interesting sort of like simple way of looking at open source because, well, more than open source, at the broader ecosystem, because it helps us understand a lot of tensions that we have right now in the community. 
And those tensions I see on two different sides. On one side, you have this tension expressed by companies like Elastic, MongoDB, Redis, that are VC-funded, profit-driven corporate entities that are having a hard time or that feel like they're having a hard time competing against cloud providers. And so I want to be clear here, that's a complex issue. Maybe when I have the time to get back to it, I think it's important to say that you can find the practices and the position of these corporations in the open source ecosystem highly questionable without at the same time approving of the business practices and the power that AWS and Google Cloud and Azure are having, right? So you can hold these two positions at the same time in your head. You don't have to take sides. And I think it's important because these issues are complex. And if we just start taking sort of really black and white kind of like takes on this, we're not going to make progress. So the point is, you have sort of like this part of the ecosystem with these practices that are questioning open source and questioning how we think about it. And then on the other side, you have this other part of the broader open source ecosystem, which has all the folks working around ethical licensing that I'm part of to some degree, right? And who are essentially questioning the way that we fundamentally look at open source being sort of like a free for all without any ethical restrictions fast. So what I found interesting in looking at them, this quadrant in that way, it helps us think about these different parts of this broader ecosystem and lets us organize them in a way that makes it easier to sort of see how the pieces fit together. So let me go through the quadrants one by one to sort of explain how that works. If you start with the top right quadrant, you have projects that have OSI certified licenses and that follow open source norms, practices, and culture. This is what everyone agrees is open source. Can you like, give me an example? Node.js, for example, right? Great. Like, yep. For example. So if you now go to the bottom left corner, you will get into the corner of what a lot of people have been calling folks open source, where you have projects like Elasticsearch or MongoDB that pretend to be open, essentially, but that no longer have OSI certified licenses and also a completely vendor-driven and do not embrace open source community norms the way we would imagine them to be. Like, good luck, you know, having commit rights on Elasticsearch. This is not going to happen unless you're an Elastic employee. So, you know, this is really sort of like two sort of like polar opposites. What's really more interesting is what happens in the top left corner and the bottom right corner. So the top left corner is where you will have projects that are OSI certified in terms of their licenses, but that completely ignore cultural norms of open source. And in there, you will find projects like Android, for example, has a, I don't even know what the license is, but like probably GPL, I'm not even sure. It doesn't really matter. Like has an open source license, but essentially is thrown over the wall as a complete project every, I don't know, 18 months, 12 months, whatever the cycles were. So this is what some folks have started calling nominally open source, open source in letter only, and only obeys to the license. But from a cultural practice, 
it is completely not open source. And this is also the place where you see a lot of these combination of GPL plus like uh, contributor license agreements that give all of your contributions to the original copyright holder of the project. And that creates this huge imbalance in the project and in the community where there is one actor that essentially can do whatever they want, monetize the project however they want, and the rest of the community is scrumbling for crumbs on the sides. What's interesting is then to sort of understand how projects that have this OSI certified license that sit in this nominally open source space can really easily sort of like fall down to the folks open uh, source place uh, that's just under it because it's essentially like it's the same culture. So the only shift that you have is sort of like a you know, legally shift, but the culture was there before and it's the same culture now. So when people act surprised by Elastic moving to a closed license and MongoDB doing the same, if you actually look at that from the perspective of like how the project was respecting community norms and practices, it hasn't changed much. Like you should have seen it coming. Another way just to clarify or add on to that rather, another way of thinking about this upper left-hand quadrant, you know, ignores norms, OSI certified, nominally open source, is that it's like open source as a noun, not a verb, right? So this is a really common phrase I've heard. Denise Cooper loves this. We're like, hey, let's open source this stuff. Okay, it's open source. Okay, let's all go everything else. And it's just like, no, open source means you got to do more. And this quadrant, they fail to do more. They fail to institute of values. They fail to add culture. They fail to you know, follow the norms of open source in general. So I just really like that idea of like open source as a verb. It's a thing you have to do. Otherwise, it's just thrown over the wall. Okay, we put an MIT license on it. Let's all go out somewhere else. Do we need that license? No, let's change it to GPL or let's change it to something much, much worse. GPL is fine. Cool. Okay, what's the bottom right quadrant? So this isn't, we're going right past community-driven open source, which is the really good stuff that's known. And we're not going down to open source or F open source or folks open source, whatever you want to call it. What's the other bit? Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce folks open source. I've just seen it written. I'm also <laughs> French, so we don't say the X in French. It's kind of weird for me. We don't say the X in English either. We actually take the French pronunciation. So I've always pronounced it in my head as open source. Uh, uh, like a faux pas. Like faux, oh, faux, yeah, faux, but that's because you have like French instruction. Moving on. So in the bottom right-hand corner, what you have is this whole collection of what I call them broader ecosystem, open source and spirit ecosystem. And this whole collection of software that abides by community norms, but that isn't necessarily OSI certified. So examples of this, you know, typically CC0 is an example of that. Anything that's licensed CC0, so public domain, is actually not an OSI certified licenses because of patent issues. So again, like, you know, concerns that rarely matter to sort of like the broader industry that really only matter to large corporate entities who are susceptible to be attacked by patent trolls, for example. You'll find everything that's public domain in there because public domain is technically not open source because public domain is, again, a complex legal problem. Again, if you're looking at this from a community norms perspective, like this doesn't really matter. The idea behind it is the same. It's just like sharing information and working on it together. What else do we find? Well, of course, we find in there ethical source. And we also find in there uh, CC by non-commercial. And that to me is also like this really interesting uh, whole world 
There's a whole world out there of people that are building open source software and who increasingly want to be able to build that open source software in the open, just like you build open source software, but that don't want that software to be used by large corporate entities. And frankly, when we look towards what tech is moving forward, it is understandable that people question this, the society model that's sort of like behind having, you know, like a handful of huge corporations control everything. And so it's completely understandable that people say, well, I don't really want my software to be used that way or for that kind of society. It's really important going back to what copyright is to understand that, you know, the default state when you create something is that you own it and you get to decide how it's used. And open source originally is, so what happens is when you end up being employed somewhere, what you produce by contract ends up being belonging to employer. And open source is kind of a hack on that to say, well, instead of it belonging to my employer, I'd rather we make sure it belongs to the commons. That's the disruptive and revolutionary concept behind open source, essentially, is to say the work that I'm doing for my employer, instead of like keeping it there, I am giving it to the commons. I think it's probably a bit more complex than that. Like if you think back to how open source started, so as far as I'm aware, it wasn't so much about giving stuff to the commons. The FSF people have been doing that already. It was about how do I get this large company and that large company to work on the same projects together? And we can't figure out how to sign contracts and, and how to have all these employees hacking on the same code for rival companies. But if we open source it, if we give it a license that kind of protects it and makes it different, It'll be easier for managers to sign off on us working together on these projects, which are then in the open, which is great. It sounds excellent for marketing and PR. It was kind of an approach to like, how do you get corporate entities to work on a shared resource, right? I think it was less of a, hey, let's put this into you know the general commons, like to make sure everyone can use it. I think it was, well, the only way we're going to be able to work on it together is if everyone can use it. Does that make sense? I, I may be wrong in my assessment of the early days of open source. I think there's like as many different reasons as there are people that were involved with it. And so, so yeah, obviously uh, getting corporations to work together, being able to continue working on the same software across different jobs, just making it easier to build on common grounds. There's lots of different reasons. But, you know, the point I was trying to make here was the fact that for part of the people working on, you know, whether it's free software or open source, the idea was to make sure that, I mean, essentially it was ethical. Those were ethical concerns. And so it's kind of like an interesting hack on, we say that copyleft is a hack on copyright, but to some degree open source is a hack on copyright too. It's a hack on being able to cross sort of corporate borders. Let's simplify it to that. And so I find it completely logical and coming from the same culture and the same, yeah, from the same culture, essentially, to adapt the concerns that people have today with the environment that is today's environment and and look at using sort of like the same tools to the same effect, which is essentially, how can I put that, drive the same kind of goals of the society that you want to live in through the tools and the work that you do. And so when I see, you know, there's the... Co-op, co-op you left license, which is for cooperatives. 
which is so one of them is I think a Belgium or French co-op that is doing cycling messi- uh, messages. What do you call that in English? Bike messengers. Bike messengers. Thank you. Either the bike messaging or like things like transporting food, like a co-op version of Uber Eats. And so they've built a whole bunch of software around this that is using that license, which is essentially trying to prevent it being used by Uber, which is cute to some degree because like, you know, there's no way that the same software would be useful for like a cop organizing like, you know, cycling routes in a small city in Uber or organizing it's like sort of like world effort. But what it, you know, what it says underneath, I think is super interesting because essentially it is sort of redefining the way that we look at the notion of commons. And instead of looking at commons as a completely broad, open thing that any, anyone can tap into, it's tying back commons to sort of like communities. And I find that really interesting. And so that's kind of why I find it interesting to, you know, to go back to this quadrant, to have these different quadrants that are sort of giving different pictures of what the broader open source e- ecosystem is. And this bottom right quadrant being sort of inclusive of all of this experimentation that's happening right now into thinking about the tools that we build differently and you know, even more strongly from a community perspective. That's what I find kind of cool about it. And what's really interesting is if you go back to this quadrant and actually ask people what they think open source is, depending on who you talk to, as, you know, as we were discussing at the beginning of, the, of this podcast, people will give you different quadrants. And everyone is going to agree that the community-driven open source top right quadrant is open source. Ask people that are really focused on open source as a license, they will tell you that the two top quadrants are open source. Ask people that are really focused on open source as community, they will tell you that the two right quadrants are open source. And so that distinction, that different perspective on what is open source and what isn't, explains a lot of the infighting and the the discussions that we have today about this. What I think is more interesting rather than the infighting here is how thinking about this can help us move forward, essentially, and avoid the kind of traps of betting on a project like Elastic. And that then turns out to be faux open source in the future. Because Frankly, given it was open source and letter only, it was, you know, I, I call it like Schrodinger open source, right? It was like, it's, it's open source, like until it's not, right? Yeah. Like you don't know. One of the things that's been really interesting to me as doing this thought exercise with this graph is looking at adding a Z axis. So I'm, I'm adding another axis, which is over time. And I'm just imagining how things have shifted and how communities have shifted, how I've personally shifted. I think your point earlier well, anyone who defines open source is going to give you, like, it depends on who you ask, right? There's a million different definitions for everything, where we came from, where we're going, who we are. It's one of the reasons I start the podcast that way. But I like the idea that we're sort of going from one angle, which is maybe up in the top quadrant where it's more, you know, open source is a noun or, or and then maybe just open source is a community quadrant. And then the top left, Node.js world. And now I see a lot of movement towards, you know, the broader ecosystem. Well, what is open source? Where did we come from? Where can we go now? How how do we make this more interesting? How do we make this more equitable? How do we build a better world? He didn't have those questions 50 years ago. He didn't have them 30 years ago in the same way that you have them now. We're in a post 
BLM world. We're in a world where everyone's been on Twitter for the past year and has been able to think about these sorts of things. I'm not saying that, you know, the OSI and open source approved licenses and the top two quadrants aren't open source and that they're not great and they're not don't have a perfectly valid place in the world at all. I just say I keep seeing this move towards the Broado ecosystem as a whole. And it's really interesting to just use that as a thought exercise. Absolutely. So there's two different things I'd like to talk about here. One is sort of the role of OSI and how I imagine OSI could look at this going forward, which I think is an interesting discussion. And the other thing that I want to point out is, so I come from the web. Originally, I'm a web developer. I moved into standards. I spent like a close to a decade in W3C and what we G circles and, you know, like trying to drive some standards forward. And, and so I have a really good sense of how that process has worked in the web. And what's really interesting is the web is an advance of us for this. If you think back when I started being on the web, like roughly 20 years ago now, everything was open. There was no sense of like privacy. Yeah. Yep. There was no sense of privacy. It was not a concept. And one of the reasons that it wasn't really necessary, it was because so few people were actually on the web. It was this fringe thing. And so what happened at first was people had, you know, like hacker handles, word names and stuff. And put 916, man. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And when Twitter arrived and then Facebook, but Twitter, even that to that French community, people, you know, there was this concept of bringing your whole self to the web, essentially. <laughs> Going back to the, when I got online roughly two decades ago, we were using handles that completely shielded our real identities from our online identities. It was a complete split. And at some point, and I remember vividly a friend of mine who was the maintainer of the JavaScript library Scriptaculous, who was using Mad Robbie as handle everywhere, moving to using his real name, Thomas Fuchs, on Twitter and changing his handle. This was a thing that everyone sort of did at the same time, roughly 10 years ago. And in the decade that went after this, well, one of the things happened, obviously, was Facebook enforcing real names. And, and its product, and just generally like an explosion of people who were not techies, who were just normal people, regular people from the world, joining online and not having the savviness and the carefulness to be able to, or just like the wish of like separating the, their personal identities was like their online identities. A small point really quickly. Sure. Facebook didn't enforce real names. Facebook enforced legal names, which have a specific function in society. A lot of people change their names. I changed mine. So it's like important to have that distinction. I apologize. Yes, this is an important point uh, because I didn't want to get into that. But like, first of all, apologies for using the wrong term. But secondly, like this was extremely problematic for a lot of people. Right? Still is, right? It's, it's oh, yeah. Is. oh, yeah. Oh, abs- yeah, yeah. So absolutely. Yeah, no, it is yeah. still really problematic. Yeah. This is not a good outcome. Where I was going was this was to say the result of everyone coming online was their real line identity was messy and created the wish for breaking down this huge online world into smaller, more protected ecosystems. And this is when you start to really have this whole fight for privacy, essentially. And privacy is about personal privacy, but it's also about recreating online a sense of community or communities 
and the ability to be able to have multiple identities in these different communities. So there is kind of like you were talking about this trend earlier in open source, and there is a similar trend that is happening, right? But that has started earlier in the web about moving from this notion of, well, the, you know, the online digital world is sort of like this infinite plane where everything is muddled in there to seeing it more as sort of like, you know, small islands, pockets of people focusing on the same thing in this, in this broader ecosystem. So I think like we're moving towards that as a society as we better understand the digital world. So that was the, the first thing I wanted to say. And then from the, the perspective of like the OSI and, and considering these licensing questions, it, this is a really interesting, it, there's a really interesting question there. And I think that what would be an incredibly powerful outcome of all of this was that we actually spent the time to look at what the real benefits of the existing licenses and the open source definition and the four freedoms are to the different things that we care about and see if they are all important for the outcomes that we care about. And I really think that part of the things that the OSI and people really care about don't necessarily require all of the, for example, like the freedom zero, which you know requires everyone to be able to, to run the software for any kind of usage. I understand the theoretical value of that. Like it's, an, it's a nice piece of thing to talk about, but I'm really questioning if it actually brings tangible benefits that we actually care about. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying I'm not really sure that we don't really care about this because of sort of a dogma, maybe to use a, a bit of a strong word, because of like its history and how we've anchored in ourselves because we needed to for previous fights that the, the community had to have. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. And I, but I think I, there's certainly people listening to this podcast who are like, well, no, we need that really importantly for this specific reason that we, you know, it's is great. What I always think about when I think of the OSI and I think of OSI approved open source and like what we call open source technically is that these are really useful conversations to have with clarity. And they're really useful to have with people who don't understand the norms of open source, who can't go around and say, okay, is this open source or is this not open source? It's really useful to have a, a limit that says, oh no, this is the line. This is open source and this isn't for people who are new to the ecosystem. But once you join the ecosystem, once you enter the church, you realize that there's all sorts of things happening and there's all sorts of different philosophies. And maybe the line's actually a bit further back than you thought it was. And maybe it's a bit further forward. The broader ecosystem, I would still call open source in like the cool open sorcery kind of way, even though I know that, well, technically open source is a technical term, which is moderated by the standards body, which goes over here. And most people agree on that and it's useful for these reasons. So I think. When we come back to things like the freedom of, you know, running on your own server or being able to run that stuff like Freedom Zero, as you were just saying, really useful to have that for some conversations, less useful to have it for other conversations. But I think it's really interesting from the way you're talking is like, how do we have this perspective of where we are and what, what kind of world do we want? I think that's coming back to the origin of what open source was made for and saying, should we maybe take it further? Should we try something else? Is there a wider community? Which is, again, you know, what ethical source and those sorts of 
initiatives are doing. I just really like the way that you framed all of these discussions in a really clear graph to me. Oh, listeners, I don't know if it's really clear to you because it's hard to see a graph audibly, but we'll have it in the show notes. Please look it up. And I think it's a really useful way of talking with people to figure out where they are so you can know where you are. So it's much easier to say, oh, okay, we both agree this is open source. That's cool. You may notice I'm wrapping up a bit and I'm sorry about that, but we are running out of time. And I want to make sure that we have time to get to our spotlights today. Toby, I really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything you feel like we have to cover? And also, where can people follow along with more conversations like this and follow along and listen to you? I really like the way you sort of wrapped it up, actually, because I do think that we need to have these conversations and we need to be clear on what it is that we're talking about. And we do need clear boundaries. We do need to be able to talk about things in a clear way. So I absolutely think that this is is really important. And thank you. Yeah, actually, I thought that this graph I sort of stumbled upon helped me think about these issues in, in a much more clear way for myself. To answer your other question, I think the best place to sort of hear more about me is just on Twitter right now. It's so my Twitter handle is just Toby, T-O-B-I-E, O-B-I-E. And yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. Toby, thank you so much. This was really enjoyable. Listeners, there's a lot more we have to say on this topic. Toby and I could have riffed on this for hours and hours. One of the things that we both enjoy doing, which is why we're in this space at all. If you have any thoughts or questions, there is always the sustaindiscourse.sustainoss.org, where we're very happy to talk about these topics further. There's also the possibility of working groups. If you want to have some clear outcome or you want to get together to talk about topics like this, we have the ability to make those sorts of things and make that happen for you. So just go on the discourse, chime in, join the community. These are the kind of discussions that we are hoping to have more often. And of course, follow T-O-B-I-E on Twitter. This is the part of the show where we leave Geneva and go back to Boston, just because I really like saying Spotlight ever since the movie came out. So Spotlight today, my Spotlight is probably going to be ICQ, AIM, IRC, AOL, actually. All of these different communities and the developers who worked on them helped make me realize there was a wider world out there back when the web was smaller. Back when my world was much smaller, when I didn't have a car, when I was 12 years old and I was first using the internet, it was these tools that really made me realize that there are other people out there in the world. For all of you who knew me as Dfoot916, I am so, so sorry. I apologize for everything I said. I was only doing what I was taught. For everyone else, I really hope that you give a shout out and just a mental note of thanks to the people who have built the tools that we communicate with today. Modern version might be Signal. Thank you so much, Whisper Systems. Super awesome. Toby, what is your spotlight? So mine is a book that I have started reading recently, which is called How to Take Smart Notes by Sankar Arendt and describe Zettelkasten, which is a really interesting way of considering reading, writing, taking notes, and thinking about the world in general was a much broader bird's eye view and a, a perspective that crosses sort of different boundaries that you would not necessarily have otherwise. So I think that writing is a huge part of the work that we do as technologists, despite what uh, we tend to think about. And this it has really helped inform how I write and think about topics in a way that for a small book is surprising. And it has also comforted a lot of things that I had like gut feelings about from when I tried to I'll go to college and got kicked out 
twice. Yeah, I think it's a great perspective on learning and writing about what you learn. So it's a great book. I recommend it. Thank you so much. The link will be in the show notes. Toby has a great bookcase behind him and he's recommended awesome books to me before. I highly suggest you all follow up on that and take a look. Toby, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really great to learn about the graph of what is and what is not open source. Hope to catch you around and have a good one. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. And yes, uh, we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Let's. 